sins upon the Prophet Muhammad wasallam. O Allah, teach us what will benefit us and benefit us with what you've taught us and increase us in knowledge, O Lord of the worlds. We all know that as Muslims, the foundational foundation of our faith is our belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that everything from the earliest call of the Prophet Adam alayhi salam to the call of the final messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam was predicated upon worship of Allah alone and of encompassing or in inculcating in ourselves an affinity and a connection to his divine being. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَمَا خَلَقْتُ الْجِنَّ وَالْإِنسَ إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُونَ I have only created jinn and mankind so that they may worship me. And he said about his Prophet ﷺ, We have not sent you except as a mercy for all of the worlds. And the Prophet ﷺ, he said, In a hadith narrated in the Musnad of Imam Ahmed, that he said, I was only sent to perfect righteous character. And so the character that we embody is an extension of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's divine attributes. He sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Ar-Rahimuna Ar-Rahman man fil man fil sama. Those who show mercy, Ar-Rahman, the most merciful, will show them mercy. Have mercy on those in the earth, he who is above the heavens will show you mercy. So everything that we do as Muslims must be predicated on the idea of mercy. And my mercy has encompassed all things Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said. Now I start with this because I want to mention to you an incident that I think encapsulates many of the attitudes that we see amongst the Muslim community when we're dealing with things like suicide, the committance of suicide, people dying by suicide, suicide ideation, mental health, and mental illness issues. And this is in a hadith that is narrated from Anas ibn Malik anhu, a young man who was raised in the prophetic household from the time of 11. It's narrated by Bukhari and Muslim that the Prophet Anas said that the Prophet and Abu Bakr were walking past a woman who was at the grave of her young child who had passed away. And so he said to her, Ittaqillahi wasbiri. Be mindful of Allah and have patience. So she didn't look up. She simply said, Ilayka anni, fa'innaka lam ta'rif ma'ana fi. Why don't you go away? Because you don't know what I'm dealing with. The Prophet ﷺ continued to walk. Later on, someone went to the woman and said, you know you said that to the Prophet? So she raced to his house, didn't find anyone guarding the door or stopping her from knocking or going in. She came in and she said, oh Messenger of Allah, I had no idea it was you who I was speaking to. The Prophet ﷺ, he said, إِنَّمَا الصَّبْرُ عِنْدَ الصَّدْمَةِ الْأُولَى Patience. Indeed, patience is only at the first sign of calamity, the first sign of trouble. Now I mention this with regards to the issue of suicide because many times when we deal with this issue, 
we have a reaction much like this woman had the reaction. Someone might have a family member who died by suicide that we all know about but nobody speaks about. And so the first thing that we do is not have patience, not hold in our emotions and be there for emotional support, but we start saying to them, why did this happen? Where were you? How could this have happened? What sort of person were they? Why weren't they doing this? Why weren't you doing that? Where was their father? Where was their mother? And we start focusing on all of the negatives. And so we, we inject negative emotion into an already charged situation. Instead of taking a step back, having patience at the, 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 the very jolting news of suicide in our family or society or community, and then saying to ourselves, how can I best be here for this person to offer them support? How can I listen to them? And we'll get to that in a minute, inshallah ta'ala. What, what are the kinds of character that we can embody? Now this idea of suicide is influenced by a lot of different, mo uh, shall I say, modes of thought or trains of thought that are in the Muslim community. And so we all know that killing is an act of sin. It's a sin to kill in the most absolute sense. But also not every killing is a murder. And not every killing makes someone culpable. Like if there was an accidental death, for example. No one in particular is sinful, although we make sure that that person is made whole and their family supported after that per person's death. But when we talk about suicide, we almost always, our first reaction is haram, right? Oh my God, how could they have done that? That's haram. That's like the biggest duh moment in the moments of speaking to someone about suicide. There's not a single person who hears about a suicide happening that doesn't know that the act in and of itself is one that we should not do or strive to do. So we have to ask ourselves, why is a person motivated to take their own life? Why would anyone and what could influence them to get to the point where they would take their own life? We focus on things like it being haram, the person who intentionally killing themselves knowingly being in the hellfire. For example, a man was fighting valiantly in battle. Hadith is in Bukhari. And the people saw him fighting, and they said, he is a person that if he dies, he's going to Jannah. The Prophet ﷺ said, he's in the hellfire. They said, how, O Messenger of Allah? He said, he's in the hellfire. After the battle, they found that he had died. They said, SubhanAllah, he died in battle. When they went and they said, go around and ask what he had done. He had actually become injured in battle and unable to continue fighting, threw himself on his sword. Instead of living with his injuries, not being the, the valiant warrior, but instead having to live with the shame of simply not being man enough to continue the battle and go on to fight another day, he threw himself on his sword and took his life into his own hands. This, the Prophet said, this person is in the hellfire. Why? Because in their full right mind, 
he tried to overtake what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had destined for him. A life not that of a valiant warrior. Now we focus on things like that, that are very specific to those situations, and we forget about the hadith of At-Tufayr al-Dawsi in Sahih Muslim. At-Tufayr al-Dawsi was a young man from the same tribe as Abu Hurairah, who accepted Islam, and he brought his father with him from the desert. Now any of you who have been to the desert, you know that it's a very pristine, clean environment. And if you move to a city, you can get sick very easily because now you're around people with germs. You just don't experience that living in the petri dish or the you know, silic sterile silicone environment of the desert. So he came to Medina, he got very sick. After he got sick, one evening, he became so depressed, this is mentioned in the hadith, he became so saddened and depressed because of his sickness that he took a knife and he cut open his joints and he lay there with his hand out until he bled to death. And he died from his wounds. Notice the hadith doesn't say he killed himself like the first. It says he died from his wounds. So the next morning, they take him, wash him, bury him, pray over him, his son sees him in a dream the next evening in Jannah with his hand behind his back. And he says, oh father, how did you get this? He said, my son, Allah forgave me because of my migration to the Prophet He said, and why is your hand behind your back? He said, well, he forgave me except for the wounds on my hand. So, At-Tufayl wakes up in the morning and he goes to the Prophet and he tells him his dream. And the Prophet ﷺ's immediate reaction was to raise his hands in dua and say, Allahumma hattal asabi'a faghfir. Oh Allah, even his fingers, forgive them. And he said it three times. And Imam al-Nawawi commenting on this hadith says, this shows that not everyone who commits suicide is necessarily in the hellfire. That there can be circumstances and emotions and situations which would make this killing one in which the person was not culpable. Now I mention that so that we as Muslims, going back to the idea of divine mercy, we as Muslims have to take into consideration the ideas of depression, of sadness, of poverty, of coercion, of things that are beyond a person's control, which would bring them to the point of suicide ideation, which the other panelists will talk about, and would want to would make them think that the only way out of their current situation is by taking their own life. So when we talk about the Islamic position on suicide, it's much more nuanced than what we know as our kind of folk Islam, where we mostly con con concentrate on those things which are negative. And I'll end with this. I mentioned the hadith before that the Prophet ﷺ, he said, I was only sent, or I was only sent that I may perfect righteous character. When we talk about suicide and people committing suicide, I want us to, instead of concentrating on why this person did what they did, we should concentrate on what we did and what we didn't do that would have allowed them to get to that point. 
loneliness, social isolation, disconnection, a lack of connection to the community is a huge problem. People can feel lonely and disconnected even when they're in a room as full as this one, even when they're in the presence of loved ones. The Prophet ﷺ, he said, The believer is amenable, caring, and cares for others. Amenable and allows himself to be cared for. He's loving and loved. There's no good in a believer who cannot care for others or allow himself to be cared for. So we need to bolster two things in our community. Number one is to start actually caring for others. Checking up, for, checking up on people when they, we don't hear from them. Calling people when we don't see them for a very long time. Giving invitations to people even if we know that they're the kind of person that just is an introvert and won't accept our invitation. And on the side of those who are suffering, we have to encourage them to know that they can be cared for. They do have the propensity to be loved and forgiven and cared for and worried about and that we are the ones that meet them at that need. Because a lot of times people who suffer from issues of depression and loneliness and so on and so forth, they, they do so because they feel that they're not worthy of being loved. They feel that they're not worthy of being forgiven of their sins. They feel that they're not enough. So it starts with us embodying the character of showing every single person that they are worthy, regardless of who they are and how they are and what they're doing. In another hadith, the Prophet said, we talk about embodying character to prevent suicide ideation and to prevent suicide, then we have to take into consideration the Prophet statement that the person who mixes with others and is patient in the face of their harm is better than the person who doesn't mix with others and is not patient in the face of their harm. Which means that people who are suicidal uh, can many times be extremely off-putting. They will try to push you away. They will try to cut you out of their lives. Again, because of that issue of self-worth. Self -worth. And by you making sure that you connect with them, you are embodying that divine attribute of mercy. You are one who is being the conduit for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's mercy in this earth. And you are better than the person who sits on the sidelines and acts as if they have no, have no need to care about anyone else. So kindness, caring, love, forgiveness, all of these are attributes that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala embodies himself and asks us to embody in our lives. So I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bless each and every one of us to come closer to worshiping Him alone through His names and attributes. Really taking them to heart, understanding those 99 names and more that He has, living those in our lives actively, and helping those who suffer from 
depression, loneliness, suicide ideation, and all other problems, so that we can be as the Prophet said, The believer, or the other believer, is like a building. Each part of it supports the other. Jazakumullah khair. Assalamu alaikum everyone. My name is Amina and thank you so much, uh, Sheikh Joe. That was, I mean, alhamdulillah, really moved by those words. And that's what I'm going to talk about. Uh, I'm going to talk about suicide amongst our youth, uh, amongst our children. And I have a background working with juvenile delinquents or at-risk youth and children in the foster care system. So I did a lot of counseling with youth that had a lot of suicidal, suicidal ideation, and some of them even attempted suicide. And I want, I'm going to talk about their stories. I want to make it very informal because what he said was absolutely beautiful. He was talking about why the Prophet asks us to embody mercy. And I'm going to go into talking about our children, what's happening with our youth in schools, what's happening with cyberbullying, social isolation, just different ways that we can prevent suicides, how we can be there for our children, how we can be there for our youth. Uh, so there's, I'm going to define three of the suicidal behaviors, suicidal ideation, suicidal attempts, and the actual suicide, uh, what suicide is. So suicidal ideation is where people have uh, children, adults, people have the thought, it can be a fleeting thought of killing oneself. It could be an actual detailed plan that they have, but it can just be a fleeting mere thought as well. Amongst Muslims, if you hear a child saying that I don't want to wake up in the morning, or I want to, I wish I could just run away, these are ways that Muslim children will say that they are hurting. They are contemplating suicide. They, because it's not socially acceptable, right, for in our culture, in our uh, in, in our communities to say, I'm going to go commit suicide. So when you hear a Muslim child saying these things, those are warning signs. Those are warning signs for us to be there, to give them that space to talk, not to say to them, make dua, do salah, you'll be okay. Those are the things that will turn them away from the deen, and also we're not being, them, being with them in that space. I've worked in an Islamic school with second graders, and I was a teacher, however, I did a lot of volunteer counseling there because my background is in social work and in counseling. And that was after I worked with juvenile, uh, at-risk youth in the juvenile justice system. And there was a child, a young girl, 11 years old, and she came to me and she said, Sister Amina, uh, why can't I just die right now? Why? Because if I die right now, I'm just a child right now, so Allah will forgive me. I can just go to Jannah. I won't be accountable for my deeds. So won't it just be easier if I just die right now? And this is an 11-year-old girl that has not hit puberty and she knows that she has, we, we've already put this in her mind that once you hit puberty, you're accountable for your deeds and you'll get sin and you'll go to hell. So she's contemplating this like, okay, if I self-harm, if I hurt myself right now, I will be eased and I'll be in Jannah. So this is a lot, I've heard this from a lot of Muslim children. Muslim children will say, this is a cry for help. And a lot of times, our youth girls are the ones, actually in America, girls four times more likely than boys will do non-fatal suicidal attempts. 
So non-fatal suicide attempts, suicidal attempts, are where they will cut, they will eat too many pills, they will try to hurt themselves, but their intent was not to kill themselves. But that is a cry for help, that is a cry for somebody to be with them, uh, they are socially isolated, they want help. And then boys, our youth, uh, they will, boys are more likely than go girls to actually go and commit the actual act of suicide where you actually have completed the suicidal attempt and you kill yourself. And the number one cause of suicidal attempts and suicide in America, in our youth, are guns. Guns are a huge issue. And if you have a gun in your home and you have it open to your, your child knows where it is, we have to hide these. We have to f figure out a way where we can uh, keep them away from this stuff. But uh, the biggest thing for us to do the, uh, is for us to give space to our children, for us to be in that space with them. And when they come to us with their problems, something as small as, oh, this, call, this kid called me ugly at school, we take it seriously. Because for them, in a teenage mind, that's the biggest thing for them. We can't contemplate that. We're thinking, oh, that's such a small issue. But it's not. Because as teenagers, they're going, their, their body is changing. There's a lot of hormonal uh, issues going on. Things are changing for them. And then what can happen is when social issues start affecting them, those hormonal changes can affect it as well. So for instance, if there's a death in the family, a sibling is moving out, going to college, a divorce in the family, domestic violence in the family. These things, while they're in their teenage years, can have a much larger effect on them than it would for an adult, because their mind is still growing. And there's another story I want to share with you with one of my clients. She was a Muslim girl as well. And she, she went overseas. Her parents were going through a very tough divorce. And they were constantly fighting, the parents. And they were using, they would, each parent would be, you know, they use, sometimes we use our children and would say, pick me, come live with me, come live with me. And she went to Pakistan and she was with her extended family and a fight broke out. She went to the rooftop, the chuck, that's what they call it in Pakistan. She went to the rooftop and she was looking down. She was looking down and she was thinking. She told me, Sister Amna, I was thinking, if I just jump, Allah will forgive me maybe? Will he forgive me? If I jump, maybe my parents will care, maybe they'll stop fighting. These are things that go through their minds. These are things that we think don't, they should not be as, like, they're children, they're not, they're not watching us, they're watching everything. Youth in our community are watching everything, our children are watching everything. And I've worked with children in the juvenile justice system. There are kids that are going through, their parents are on drugs, they're going through a lot of issues, they're uh, shoplifting, they're doing things, and I was a probation officer, so I, my main job was to go to their schools, to go into their homes, talk to them, counsel them, to make sure that they're following their plan, and they would just sometimes say, Miss Omna, if I, if I don't live tomorrow, can you tell my mom I love you, or love her? Can, I tell my, can you tell my mom I love her, that I didn't mean to be a bad child? that maybe one day, and then there was one, that same kid said to me, tell her that I love her, and she won't have to bear with this pain anymore that I'm giving her. Because he's obviously, he was going through a lot of mental health issues as well. There was a lot of trauma in the home. But these are, when a child or a youth says something like that, that means it's a, they're asking for help, they're crying for help. And a lot of times our Muslim kids will say the same thing. They will say, can I, can, I, I don't want to wake up in the morning. Maybe you don't have to deal with me anymore. 
These are things, when they talk like this, these are warning signs. We can talk about, a lot of times, a lot of these kids are going through situational issues, and it might not be. We can stop this ideation, and we can get them help by getting them counseling services, putting them into counseling. Because counseling is not for just people with psychiatric issues or mental health issues. It's also people that are going through situational issues that are happening in their home. Counseling is for everyone. I really, truly believe if we, because counseling, when they come talk to a person that is unbiased, doesn't know anything about their life, they can let go. A lot of that pain is released. So putting, our, putting counseling services in our schools and our masjids is so important. It's so important. And that's, like, honestly, when I was working at the Islamic school, my main job was to teach. But I wanted to make sure that those kids had someone to listen to or they had someone they could talk to. So some of the other warning signs that we can look for are if the, these children are not meeting with their friends anymore. They're becoming isolated. These are just warning signs. These are, you need to look out for these as parents, as uh, siblings. Look out for these. If they're coming home and you ask them how was their day and they isolate themselves in the room, that's a warning sign that they may be going through something really traumatic at school. It could be bullying at school or cyberbullying. Nowadays, we're in such a technologically advanced community, like time, right? So cyberbullying, Snapchat, Facebook, I mean, I don't know, Instagram, all of these. These are things where they'll go and they're cyberbullying. And cyberbullying is harder to tackle. It's much harder to tackle than actual bullying in the schools. Like your child might come say, oh, this kid called me ugly, or this kid called me, uh, you know, our Muslim ch children get called horrible things. They'll, they'll be called, oh, what are you doing? What are your parents doing on 9-11? Or something like this. This is stuff that goes on in school, but you can actually go and advocate for your child. You can go and advocate and talk. To, you know, and you can pinpoint it. But cyberbullying, sometimes you cannot. You cannot pinpoint it, and it's something that's happening. Every, like it's, a, it's a trend that is just going, getting worse and worse. And there's actually many states that have uh, criminalized cyberbullying. So we have to understand that we need to be involved in our children's lives, understand what what's going on in school. If you want to be that nagging parent always going to the school, figuring out what to do, be in their face, be in the administration's face to figure out, because that's how we can stop. Because bullying leads to suicidal ideation, suicidal ideation leads to suicidal attempts, suicidal attempts will eventually lead to actual fatal suicide. So that's where we need to stop it. We need to be the biggest advocates for our youth. We need to be in the schools. We need to talk to their administration. We need to advocate for them, especially with Muslim kids nowadays. Sometimes it's in this environment, the country, that, like what's going on in the world, a lot of times youth internalized what's going on. And we, we know how to separate. We know how to separate what's going on in the world and our everyday lives, but they don't. There has been Muslim kids that have said to me, all of this poverty, all of this stuff that's going on, what's the point of even living? And when you say something, what's the point even of even living something as small as that is something we need to be worried about. We really need to be worried about that because that is, that is something that you do need, they need to get counseling for. It is something that we need to uh, advocate for, to, for them to be in the schools. Counselors, we need counselors in our Islamic school and it's very important. Sometimes, uh, in our society, in our culture, it's very difficult for Muslim parents to come to the terms with, like, maybe my child needs counseling. Maybe my child needs that one-on-one, uh, -on -one unbiased opinion to help them cope with the stuff that they're going through in school. Because it's, it's not the same as when we were growing up or when I was growing up. 
I didn't have to deal with those things. But nowadays it's very difficult and that's what leads to suicide. And I, I, I pray that Allah makes it easy for our children. I pray that Allah gives us the capability to be there for our children, give them space. When they come to you with an issue, you let them talk and don't say, do dua, go pray salah, become a better Muslim. Because these, we have to build that taqwa in them from a young age, but there's sometimes things that are going on as teenagers that they cannot, they're not going to understand. Telling them to go to Allah is not the solution. Being there and listening to them and giving them that space and telling them that it's, I'm here for you, just talk. I'm here for you, just talk, let it out. That is the key thing that I want you all to take from here, is to listen to them. When they, you make sure you make that space for your child, for your sibling. If you feel like they are, uh, you see some warning signs, such as you know, they, they're not particular about their hygiene, they're sleeping late, they're, they're showing, showing signs of depression, uh, they feel helpless, they feel uh, just different things where they're socially isolating themselves and they weren't usually like that, those are signs of suicidal ideation. Those are signs that can lead to a spiraling path down something that we would not want for our children. And I just want us to leave with, I'm going to leave with it, let's pray, I want to pray for our children, inshallah, may Allah make us the means for them, make us the peaceful place for them to come. And inshallah, I first do want to recognize and thank uh, Islamic, uh, River Oaks Islamic Center for not only acknowledging Suicide Prevention Week, but also opening the doors to having this open dialogue about a topic that we consider very taboo in our community. I actually, when I received the message from Brother Omer, I was shocked myself. I was um, taken back, but I was, I felt like finally, I think we're starting this movement in the right place. So thank you so much for this. Um, we purposely today decided not to talk about statistics and do a PowerPoint presentation because we wanted a conversation. <clears throat> so we do hope everyone does stay. I was trying to get the question answered before I'm going to be able to do that because I think that's the most important part of a conversation is for you guys to be able to ask questions and us to discuss this. However, with that being said, we do have very important information that um, Amna had printed out here. Um, if you can hold the first one. Yes. This is, yeah, this is a, a talk about preventing suicide by the Center of Disease Control. It gives you the facts, it gives you the statistics, what to look out for, the warning signs, and anything you need to know and references as well. And this, we have, we printed this out. It's the Houston Area Suicide and Mental Health Resources, what you can uh, look for in our community, and also counseling services with Sakina Center. Uh, if your child or you or anybody needs counseling, I, Sakina Center is the place to send them. Um, if I can see by raise of hands, if you have known someone who has either committed suicide, had thoughts of suicide, or is someone who um, attempted but did not go through. Can I see your raise of hands? Okay. So just in this small gathering, majority of everyone has raised their hands. And how is it that this is probably one of the first conversations in an open dialogue that we're having about it? 
So as you can see, it's a topic that needs to be discussed. And I'm going to talk about a couple things here quickly. Um, I'm to keep a track of time so I know when I have to go. Okay. Um, prevention is very important. Very important. And they both spoke about that. But I feel like in our community, we see suicide as just a black and white issue. It's haram and that's it, you know? And that's not true at all. And I think everyone here who's had someone affected or knows somebody knows it's not black and white at all. I, she spoke about youth, but I also want to speak about women. I know this is uh, actually, statistically, men are more likely to commit suicide. But I want to give you an example. I want to give an example about a Muslim woman. I want to speak about her journey and what has happened with her and her family. I think it's important. Um, so there's a mother, she was about 55 years old. Um, she had two grown daughters. They lived, they lived somewhat of a normal life, practicing Muslim family, involved in the community, with many friends. Recently, her daughter got married. It was a big wedding. Everyone in the family seemed socially happy, involved in the event. However, only the family knew what was going on at home, which was a very different story. They saw a change in their mother, the daughters did, that they couldn't quite understand what was happening. Um, and she didn't seem very happy. Mom didn't seem happy. Nothing really made her happy. Um, and the mother herself started questioning everything, like, what is going on? Why is this happening? So what do most Muslims do when we start questioning ourselves? We go to the Imam and ask them. So that's what she did. She was questioning so many things. So she went to the, a couple of Imams in the uh, community and asked them, you know, these are my symptoms. What is happening to me? And what do you think they said? Right, okay, but what do you think they said was happening to her? Allah was testing her and her faith. Okay. Actually, I would have preferred that answer. What they told her was, oh, this is evil eye. These are jinns. This is black magic. This is what's going on with you, sister. You need to do get rukia. You need to start praying. You need to do dua. You'll be fine. Just start these things. So what did she do? She started everything. She started exactly what they said. She started praying more. She, she was reading Surah Baqarah every single day, okay? She was doing her best that she thought she could, read the Quran, did everything possible. But guess what? That didn't work for her. On good days, on good days, she was able to pray, read Quran. But on bad days, she couldn't even get up out of the bed to make her soul. There was no way she could even open the Quran. I want to talk about a little more about bad days. What are bad days? Bad days are when we think, oh, we're just in a bad mood, you know, it's one of those days, don't talk to me, leave me alone. No. It's very bad, meaning you're not moving, you're not getting out of bed. You lose your appetite, you're not eating, you don't take the phone calls, you don't even check in with your kids. Sometimes you don't even shower for a couple of days. And this is what started happening. And the days got worse, but sometimes in the middle of that, she seemed okay. So there was like this extreme mood swing that nobody was quite understanding. Her family asked her, um, do you think you should talk to somebody? Like, should we get some counseling? Should we find out what's going on here? And her reaction was, no, 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 no. This is a family issue. I'll be fine. 
not that many would know what's going on with me. This is private. I'll be fine. Is it okay? Well, nothing was changing. So the family thought, okay, well, we have to do something else. What can we do? What will help mom? Maybe we should send her to her home country. Yeah. Let's send her back home. She'll be in a different environment. Things will help her. Let's just send her home. She can see her family. So that's what they did. She, she went one month. She went one month. She came back. And they said, oh, guys, we see a difference. She's not happy, but she seems to be doing better. Well, she was. it took her about a week or two. And then guess what? Symptoms started coming back. And they started getting worse. So now family's back to square one. But they're getting a bit scared because, again, like I said, the symptoms were getting worse. So what they did was, okay, they begged their mother, please let's go to the psychiatrist. Something is not right. We need to take you. Mom was scared out of her mind. I'm not going. They're going to hospitalize me. They're going to take me away. I'm not going to the hospital. Don't take me to the ER. The daughters promised her, we'll take you. We won't let anything happen to you. Just come. So she went. They went to the psychiatrist, and she just sat there. Really didn't answer questions, but she just sat there. The psychiatrist uh, then asked, uh, you know, can I talk to your daughters? Mother said, that's fine. So he asked the daughters, um, has your mom ever had thoughts of suicide? The daughters were shocked. It didn't even cross their mind. They're like, no, we're Muslim. You know, she's just, these are her symptoms, and this is what's happening. No, she's not that. She's just sad and depressed. So he said, okay, in that, in that case, I'll give you a prescription. In two months, come see me back for a refill. We'll see how she's doing then. Is it okay, fine? So they took mom back home, they started the medication. In two months, they did notice a change. So again, alhamdulillah, mom's feeling better. She's doing great. She started taking her medication. In two months, medication's out. Time for a refill. But what do you think mom got and the family got? I don't need the medication anymore, I'm fine. So she stopped her medication. Um, two weeks, about a week and a half, two weeks, and by the way, the daughters don't know that mom stopped the medication. She just stopped herself because she thought she was fine. And nobody really checked on that. They assumed she's taking it. Um, two weeks after that, within two weeks, uh, the daughters get a call from the hospital. Uh, they said, your mother has tried to kill herself and we don't think she's going to make it. You need to come immediately. The daughters were in shock. They could not even imagine for one second their practicing mother who raised them, who taught them everything would, would do that. They didn't even think for a second that was going to be something their mother would do to herself. They knew, you know, it got bad, but never thought that it would lead to this. So, unfortunately, the mother did not make it. At the hospital, when they're in the hospital, they would they start getting phone calls from the community. The first call they got, and this is, mind you, the doctors are telling them that their mother's not going to make it. You know, this is probably the end. They're trying to grasp the reality of what's happening. Now they're getting calls from community members saying, um, kind of yelling loudly, is it true? Is it true? Your mother killed herself? Okay. So in the midst of them going through all this, 
Now we have people calling the first thing they say, the first call she gets to the hospital about her mother is, is this, is this really true? I mean, it's, it's shocking, but unfortunately, it's not surprising, right, in some ways. It's not surprising that this is the response that we have as a community. But for a second, in this situation, I want us to focus on the family, because I think so many times we just focus on the act of suicide that person. We don't focus on what the family is going through. And I think that's where the lack and the disconnect is with us as a Muslim community with the family. This family who just is going through such extreme trauma, dealing with the loss, it's shock, they're in shock, they're going through a range of emotions, not to mind the guilt that has taken over. Now they have a community so judgmental asking all these probing questions in the middle of you know trying to figure out themselves how did we get to this point and honestly these are some questions i ask you know i ask as a, you know, as a community how many more families have to go through this pain alone how many more families have to lie about their family members death because they don't want to go through the feelings of shame, embarrassment of others. There are family members, Muslim family members in the states that cannot, sometimes cannot find an imam to pray janazah because they found out it's a, it's a suicide. The imam says we're not going to get involved in this. Okay, or you know, uh, they get no moral support, they get no moral support, no family support, no support from people because they found out it's a suicide. And there's also some um, there's also some Muslim funerals that will not wash bodies if they find out too. The lack of empathy and compassion for people's trauma and loss is incredibly insensitive and extremely hurtful. And we don't focus on that because we're so focused on it's a suicide, it's haram, we can't be involved. And we don't, we lose, we lose the sight of the family that is suffering. Because they're the ones suffering with the loss of a family member. So speaking about preventive care, the best thing that we can do is removing the stigma of suicide and mental health. We really have to focus on that. We really have to start educating, not just our moms and our religious leaders and how to handle mental health issues, but how, as we can discuss and you know have these groups and openly discuss things about tab that will, topics that are considered taboo, and we can't discuss this, and we don't. This has nothing to do with us. We don't even you know um, we don't even believe in suicide and all those things. We also have, and Amna went over this quite a bit. We also we have to be open and accepting to getting professional help. Um, I've had a lot of young clients ask their parents, can you find me a therapist? So this is like, I feel like a good thing. Time, times are kind of changing where the younger generation is not afraid of therapy. They don't have this to come up, so that's good. But it's the parents that have the issues, you know. So what are some things that we can do? What are some things that we can do? And I also want to comment that not all Muslims take that final step of committing suicide. 
but they do find other ways to self-harm, right? Um, some examples are like cutting, eating disorders, drugs, alcohol, other ways of trying to cope with the hurt and the pain, the isolation, everything that these two kind of went over. So yes, we might say, and by the way, we, we don't have stats on Muslim suicides because they're not reported. So it's really hard to say exactly where we stand as a community. So how should some families handle these issues? Um, my first thing is, are we having conversations at home with our parents, our children, about suicide, about feelings of, and like Anna said, that not every Muslim person says, I am thinking about suicide. Usually it starts with, I don't feel like being here anymore. These comments are very, those are like the Muslim, Muslim version of, basically, I don't wanna be here or I wanna kill myself. Because I've had, I've had people tell me that it's so hard for them to even say to me out loud, no, I don't wanna commit suicide, because I know that's wrong. However, I've had thoughts. And just that line of saying that out loud to me was very difficult. There's some myths that people believe that if we talk about it, people will think about it, people will do it, and that's not true at all. People really think that, and that's not true. That's not true at all. So when you speak to your kids, or when you speak to someone who needs help, educate yourself first. Get some information before you go out there and you have that conversation. And, uh, trying to handle that situation. Um, I thought, I was like, well, let me ask my kid. Let me ask my kid. Let me just do like, a quick scientific experiment. What my kid would say when I asked about suicide? Wow, I was surprised. I was really surprised. I think what we do is we try to protect our children, other people, thinking that they're not ready for this conversation. Shockingly, they know people as young as in middle elementary school that now have committed suicide. So having a conversation, being ready, understanding. Um, I also want to say that when somebody does have this conversation with you, or a, a child tells a parent, I've had thoughts, reaction is very important, extremely important. Um, unfortunately, how do you think most Muslim parents will react to something like that? If a child says, I self-harm, I've had thoughts, what do you guys feel like would be the, like a typical reaction? Anger. Yeah. Anger, exactly. What do you think that anger would tell that person who's having this conversation, trying to have a conversation with their parents? So I have a 15-year-old client who started off by cutting. She was cutting. And so I specifically told the mother certain things that she's allowed to do, not allowed to do. Obviously, safety issue. Nothing can be in the house now. No says there's nothing that she can use as a weapon. That was number one. Number two, your 15-year-old, almost 16, cannot be home alone, period, at any time. And the mother was like, oh yeah, sure, I got it. Yeah, 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 I know, I know, okay. So the mom had to run a quick errand, a really quick errand. She didn't want to be with her teenager daughter, didn't want to go, so she just took her. And she just left. She's like, I'll be back in five minutes, I'll be right back. The second she left, the daughter ran downstairs, opened the medicine cabinet, opened the bottle, and just took 10, 15 pills. The instant she left. And this was the first suicide attempt, by the way, because she was only cutting before. So she happened, she called her friend because she panicked. She 
she, she had, her impulse control was to do it, she didn't think it out. She didn't plan to do that, she just had this urge to go do it, so that's what she did. So she panicked, she put that, she called one of her friends. He panicked and called 911. So the ambulance came, the mom came right back and was in shock. What just happened? I just left for five to 10 minutes and now here I'm going to the hospital to find out my daughter overdosed on pills. Going through this whole story, I said, okay, well, how did your mom react? Because I found out after the fact. And she's like, oh, my mom was so mad at me. I'm like, excuse me? What, what do you mean? She said, my mom said, you are so selfish. How can you do this? You know we don't have insurance. We're not going to be able to afford this. And now look what you've done. Look what you have done. And that's how she responded to her daughter trying to take pills and overdose. She's just doing this for attention. I know her. You get everything you want. Why are you doing this to your family? You are stressing me and your mama out. So I ask you, how is this helping that situation? What is that reinforcing to this 15-year-old girl? What is that telling her? That that's what you care about? My, my life is just about you paying insurance and not having insurance, and now you're going to be in debt? So, you know, we have to be able to react to our children and to people, friends, and situation that is, first of all, number one, acknowledging their pain, understanding, reassuring them that, you know what, I'm gonna help you, I'm not gonna leave you, you're not alone. And then number three, always take everything, even if it's from a kid, take any threat, any words they say, take it seriously. I know a lot of people think, oh, they're just so drama. They're just saying that. Even if they are, it doesn't matter. It has to be taken seriously. You have to report it. You have to tell a parent. You have to tell a friend. Um, also, I think it's important, another, I keep saying everything's important because I feel everything is important. Um, we're so close to, we're so resistant to psychiatric medication. I just want to speak about that for just a couple minutes because I know it's about to be prayer time. Uh, do we have time or do we? Five minutes? Okay. Yes, I know we have this, uh, we resist therapy, but some of us are kind of open doors. But the first couple questions I get in therapy is, what are your thoughts about medication? I don't want to do medication. Medication's bad, medication, I'm just like, can we just start the process? Can we find out if you were having health problems, if you were having a heart condition, would you tell your doctor, I'm sorry, I don't believe in it. I'm gonna pass. Every panel I've ever done about anxiety, depression, or anything has always led back to a question and answer. 90% of the questions about medication. Are, what other forms can I do? What exercise can I do to cure myself? What foods can I eat to cure myself? Now, I'm not one just to put medication on anybody. However, when it's needed, I think we have to understand that there's a reason it's there. There are other options. Please look into everything, but don't just shut it down. A lot of people don't even want to go to therapy or a psychiatrist is because they're afraid. I'm going to be on medication. I don't want to be um, you know, addicted to medication. Just all these negative, negative concepts and ideas and stereotypes of what medication is. Now, the example I gave you about the mother, 
this is very typical for a lot of people handling situations. Yes, hers was extreme and it went to suicide. However, uh, starting medication, stopping medication, thinking that she's cured, not thinking she's cured, trying to go around, trying to self-medicate, trying to figure out her own problems. I think every single one of you knows somebody in her family or friends that does that, right? And that's not the right way. It's not the right way. Um, I do wanna, I really hope that everyone does stay and kind of ask questions. And if you're not comfortable asking questions, you can write them down and bring them up to me. But after Salah, inshallah, we do want to have a quick Q&A because that's very important. I was hoping to get it in before, but time is short, uh, inshallah, um, after prayer. So if I could just add one thing, because you mentioned the issue of medication, just to kind of preempt it, preempt some of the questions. This comes a lot of times in that we have a very large propensity in the Muslim community for quackery and completely baseless medical cures. So let me just preface that. Um, and those things which are proven to work, we uh, don't use them. And we many times uh, ascribe to conspiracy theories of SSRIs and the, you know, the, the, the medical industrial complex and all these other things. And I can tell you that no one sitting up here and no mental health professional that I know in the Muslim community wants anyone to be on medication long term. But just like you would take vitamin C to increase your immune deficiency, you know, your immunity um, to bolster your health so that you can get to a higher level of health, the same thing goes with medication that you take. Now you might say to yourself, you know, because we're always looking for something, somebody might say, well, I don't believe that Islamically we should be doing this. The Prophet himself prescribed certain things that were known to be soothing and to help people in their time of sorrow and depression and, and sadness. A man had a family who passed away. A number of people of family in his a number of people in his family passed away. And so he told his companions, he said, Zuruhu wa talbina He said, go and visit him and take him a certain type of porridge to eat because it takes away sorrow. So commenting on this, scholars said that at times it may be the medicinal uh, uh, quality of what you're giving that person that helps them get into a better mood, and it may simply be a placebo. But preventative medicine and curative medicine are both encouraged in Islam. So here the Prophet ﷺ saying, give him something to take away his sorrow. He also, وسلم, said, whoever eats seven dates from the dates of Medina, uh, then will not be, not be harmed uh, in that day from certain uh, maladies that he mentioned. And so commenting on this as well, scholars said, look, the Prophet وسلم, here is prescribing something before the sickness happens, not afterwards. So preventative medicine, curative medicine, specifically with regards to mental health, is nothing, is, is no different than, as Fatima said, than taking medicine for your heart or anything else. So I think, what's the plan now, guys? What's the timeline? I just pray. Let's pray, John. Yeah, let us know. SubhanAllah. for the wonderful and informative panel. And after Salah, we're just going to come right back to this setup. So I have a couple of questions as uh, we wait for the first question to roll up. The first one is for Sister Amina. 
So uh, you did mention about having the space with your kids to just talk. A lot of times what parents will do is they'll say to their kid, okay, talk, and the kid doesn't say anything, right? So how do you create that space where so, you have that conversation? So we... So that's the thing, you have to start making that space for them as they as when they're a child. We have to start, we have to implement that when they're young. We have to spend time with them. We have to, that's where we we, we're, we are their parents, so we are also supposed to be their friends, right? So we have to develop that relationship because a lot of times, um, a lot of times uh, they won't talk, but you know what? You can sit with them in silence. Silence is not, something that we should fear. Sometimes you're sitting there with your kid in silence and just say, I'm here. Just sit with them because sometimes that really makes a difference. Letting kids know that they don't have to talk about everything, but you are there sitting with them, just even sitting on the couch. Like I have a 14-year-old boy, and sometimes I nag him a lot. I'm like, tell me what happened. Tell me what happened at school. And then he's like, Mom, I don't want to talk about it. But then I'll just say, okay, I'm gonna sit here. I'm sitting here, I'm like, we will just sit here, and after maybe like 30 minutes, he'll start opening up. So knowing that you, that you have to give them time, and they will start opening up. We can't nag them and say, tell me what happened, tell me what happened, because I fall prey to that a lot as a mother, I do. And I, now that he's getting older, I am giving him that space. In silence, we are always scared. We get uncomfortable in silence, and we cannot be uncomfortable in silence. We have to let our kids know that we are there with them in their silence, in their pain as well, because sometimes just sitting there with them relieves their pain. And it also depends on the age. I think it depends on the age. So I'm gonna address the teenagers first. Um, I think asking a simple question of how are you doing? What's going on? And acknowledging that there's been change. I've noticed you know, you've been in your room more often. I noticed you're disconnected with the family. I noticed, you know, certain things that you were telling them that I see there's a change. Ask them, just a simple question. And letting them know that if they're not responding, that that's okay, I'm worried about you. Is there anything else that you'd like to tell me? If you don't feel comfortable with me, who do you feel comfortable with? There could be a family member. Right? There can be someone they feel comfortable with that you can say, you know what, maybe I can take you, you guys can have coffee and have a discussion with them. And if it turns into something that you see, okay, it's, we need professional help, then asking them, do you know what, I don't know, I know how to help you as a parent, but I can find you help. Acknowledging that you can find help is very important. That I don't know how to answer this or how to help you, but I'm acknowledging that there needs to be something done. For younger kids, it's watching behavior. Young kids will act out, so will older in a different way. Younger kids will act out. Like, um, there's kids who get bullied at school. At school, you won't be able to tell they're getting bullied because they've taken it at home. They're taking it all out on everybody in the family. They show anger, they show aggression. And so instead of getting mad, you need to sit them down and say, what's happening? What's going on? Well, you, you seem so angry today. Did something happen at school? Asking probing questions to little kids will get you somewhere to where you know, okay, I need to ask the teacher what's going on. And then find what's going around at the school by going to that source at, at school. That's what I would say. If I can only add to that, and this is just 
from my experience, uh, the first, the, the number one way you're going to get your kids not to talk to you is not allowing them to trust you. And many parents are way too prying, and they can't even allow their children to talk to a trusted adult. And so they will, uh, they will nag and antagonize that trusting adult to get them to tell them what their kids said, and then they'll go back to their kids and then rub it in their kids' face, or you know, open the conversation with them. And until you can build a, 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 um, a rubric of trust between you and a trusted individual, whether it be a family member or a friend or a counselor or somebody like that, and your child, you'll always have your child uh, shut off from you and they won't want to say anything to you. So be very careful about even, um, you know, if they, if they want to express it to someone else, allow them and allow them the, the independence to do that without you having to dictate the way the conversation goes. Okay, I've got another question. How can caretakers reach out for help? Can for suicidal family members is tough and can be done by one? How do caretakers, how can caretakers reach out for help? I think self-care is a lot of part, uh, has a lot to do with this. Understanding that you can't fix everything, everything can't be on you, that you need outside help, you need to reach out to others, you need to find a healthy outlet for yourself. Yes, the person you're caring for or the family you're assisting, they are in therapy or medication or whatever, but you need someone to talk to also. You need your own outlet. You need to find healthy ways to take care of yourself. Uh, we have a lot of good questions here, and I know we're short on time, so we're going to go through some of them. I think we should take all the questions. Yeah. Okay. What is the exact first thing one should do if they receive a suicide note from a friend, youth, or adult? So I would say the first thing you want to do is to talk to your friend first. Find out what's going on. Find out, you know, there's, first of all, let them know you're there for them, right? Let them know you're there, find out what's going on, and letting them know that because you reached out to me and because you are having these thoughts, I have to get help for you. I'm not gonna stay here and just, you know, not do anything about it. You have to reach out, you have to, and sometimes going to the parent um, might not be what they want. And again, it depends on the age of the person you're dealing with, but um, definitely it takes quite a few people to get on board to get this person to get help, and you need to get as many as you want. Now, if that person is gonna say, I'm not gonna talk to you, I don't trust you, you have to make that decision to, if this is going to save their life, then I will go ahead and let them be upset at me until they start feeling better. Like, you have to decide that. Am I gonna break their trust and tell somebody? But if it's their life we're talking about, then yes, you're gonna have to do that. We'll take the next one. Sure. Uh, so th this question says, how can someone in Houston find a Muslim counselor? Here is a page of resources for you to find Muslim counselors. And I can tell you that uh, Sakina Center is very trusted in my book. And if you can't find um, help from Sakina Center, then there are other resources on here. And there are other Muslim counselors who work with other larger organizations who do work as well. And uh, I think it would be a great idea if um, ISGH, as a leading organization here in the community, uh, were creating these type of resource documents that 
were cross-organizational and allowed people to know where in Houston they can get the type of help that they need. Uh, but this is a start. Sakinatherapy.com, uh, Sakina Center, the number's on here. There's always uh, somebody on the line as well. Um, the next question was, what was the hadith about the man who wasn't forgiven for his cut but accepted into Jannah? So this is the hadith of Al-Tufayl al-Dawsi. It's narrated in Sahih Muslim. And so the man had cut his fingers open and bled to death. But he was forgiven uh, due to his migration to the Prophet And the Prophet uh, made dua for him after he was seen by his son in Jannah, showing that a person who uh, performs the act of suicide can still be forgiven. And it is not a clear cut, you know, black and white case of a person having unequivocally committed a sin or done wrong when they're suffering from circumstances that many times are beyond their emotional control. And I want to bring a um, just a, a quick point here. Um, well, number one, you can read more about this hadith and explanation of it on my website. I did a series of about five articles on the topic of uh, suicide that you can find on joebradford.net. And then secondly, I want to draw attention to our language and our vernacular. And that is the idea of committing suicide versus performing suicide or dying by suicide. Committing suicide means that we are automatically assuming culpability when the person who has performed the suicidal act may have not been uh, culpable. They may, may not be in their right mind and may not be responsible. So it's a psychological thing for us as well when we talk about the commitments of a crime and the commitments of suicide versus having performed suicide. It was a means by which they died, but we're not stigmatizing the person, and by extension, that has a, a huge effect on their family because people don't want to feel that their family member has been stigmatized at a time when they were emotionally weak, and now they are emotionally weak, living with the, um, the fallout from the loss of that individual in their life. So we have to be very careful um, in the, the way that we, that we talk to others, especially about this topic. We do have some questions from the audience, so if you could go to the audience and then back to yes. the... Yes, go ahead, right now. So this question will be for the entire panel. However, it is referencing something that Sheikh Joe mentioned earlier. Uh, you mentioned, Sheikh, that depression and idealization often has a denominator of one ceiling of little or no work. And you told us that one takeaway action would be is not ask what they did or did not do, but what did we and what did we do and did not do. And a part of that, I think, is a, is a very good point. However, from my perspective, just being in a community, especially from a Desi culture's perspective, I've seen that there are a lot of people who know their value, who know their worth, but because of other life stressors from pressures of family, of school, of work, they feel the inclination to have suicidal idealization, et cetera. So I think that's a, that's a, that's a missing piece that even though someone acknowledges that they may have that self-worth, that life is just too difficult for them to deal with overall from the pressure that they experience. So what can be the takeaway for someone like myself, a friend, uh, in that example, let's say, where what can, what, how can we position ourselves to approach that issue? Can you take that? So uh, I'm just going to rephrase your question. You're basically asking about 
how do you, because like, you're right, a lot of people do have self-confidence and they're strong and they're life stressors. So that life stressors can cause people to have suicidal ideation. And that's why I wanted to emphasize that suicidal ideation is not something with not, it's not always somebody that has a mental health issue or depression, clinical depression, or uh, you know other types of uh, psychotic disorders. So uh, suicidal ideation is, I mean, most more people than not will have suicidal ideation one time or at least one time in their life. And that could, that those are due to social issues. Pressure, pressure from parents to make good grades, pressure like they just, a lot of times that that pressure can build and they just want to get out of it. And a lot of times work, work is a huge stressor. So these stressors, we have to learn how to deal with these through coping mechanisms. We learn these coping mechanisms by going to counseling. Not necessarily with these life stressors, we, medication might not be the solution for that. The solution for that may just be talk therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy, learning how to deal with these issues in a better way. How do we change our thought processes to have more positive self-talk, talk, talk, positive uh, ways to deal with these things. So that's why counseling is not always for people with mental health issues. Counseling can be situ for a situational issue. Somebody just passed away, and your, your, your father passed away, your mother passed away. You Counseling can help you. It's a bereavement through bereavement process. And they will, the council will help you with coping mechanisms. Uh, so divorce, family issues, somebody leaving, stressors at work, these are all loss of a job. These are all situational issues that may not, they can lead to mental health issues, but they may not be that. And it's just situational issue that can be helped through talk therapy, through uh, counseling. And that's why we have all these resources here in Houston. And alhamdulillah, I'm so happy that people are more willing to get counseling now. And it was taboo, it was very, it is still taboo, but it's getting better in our Desi community and the Pakistani, Indian, South Asian community. We still, parents are still not wanting to do that, but sometimes when a kid is having stress at work, school, it may not be a mental health issue, but they may need that counselor just for maybe six months to a year. So I'm, gonna, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, sure. I know it's customary to begin with saying, I apologize, there's actually two questions, but oh, okay. I forgot to mention that. Um, so I, and I appreciate the answer, and I think that, that's great, especially now that we're, we're making counseling not taboo. And yeah. it's totally okay, which is great, and I think that was a great answer, and I appreciate that. I want to also reference, I believe Sister Fatima. Yes, so you mentioned a story about a 15-year-old daughter who, who, who overdosed, and the mother's reaction to that. So when I heard that story, I saw that as in itself a warning sign uh, or a result of a trickle-down effect from maybe that mother's own you know, trauma or whatever else they may be dealing with that warrants their own counseling. And I know today we focus on youth and children, but we also, of course, that taboo comes from the generation before us. How can we better bridge the gap or also make this targeted towards the auntie and uncle community that we have? So most counseling that we handle with the children or young adults or youth, we have parent involvement. A lot of it is learning, teaching parenting skills, teaching ways of how to communicate. That's huge, especially speaking about South Asian and I think most Muslim cultures, we are not taught or informed of how to communicate with each other properly in most of our relationships. We're not taught that. 
So we do, we do address that with most, most of our youth counseling will turn into family sessions where we can teach the whole family how to communicate. You're right, the, the mother, usually the mother and the father have a lot to do why the child is in counseling. In some ways, they play the part of it. And it's acceptance and understanding and it's how do I improve my situation and help my child. So um, thank you for that. That's a really important question because it, it is a whole family situation that we have to deal with. So I'm gonna go ahead with one more. It says, how do you reach out to an adult who has withdrawn and secluded themselves from family and friends without making them feel embarrassed or pitied? Okay, well, I'll go ahead and answer that. So, uh, there, if you have a friend or a, a family or loved one that is withdrawn and socially isolating themselves, there are ways without pitying them, without reaching out. They might just need a text. How are you doing? Can I do something? Can I pick up some food for you? Can I do something? These small acts of kindness for them will hopefully get them out of that isolation with you with you at least, and then they'll start turning to you. They may, it, it takes time. That's why when I had said silence sometimes is golden, you can, you don't have to ask about, oh, why are you socially isolated? Why are you, why are you acting withdrawn from me? Asking those questions might get them to, you know, not, they might withdraw even more. Sometimes just being there, going out of your way to do something nice going out of your way to uh, maybe send them something, send them some flowers or something, just saying, oh, just because. These acts of kindness go a long way. Because I've had personal experiences and experiences in my work in professional life that when you do these types of things where you don't target their isolation, you don't target their why they're not hanging out with you, why they're not doing these things with you like they used to, Sometimes just making it a normal thing, like, oh, what's up? You wanna go, I'm gonna bring you some ice cream. Show up. They might not like it in the beginning, they might get uncomfortable, but when you knock on the door and show up, more likely than not, they'll let you in. And they will talk to, they might not talk about that, the problem they're going through, but you can talk about other things until they get to that point where they want to open up to you. And I feel like acts, little small acts of kindness are seen as, the, People aren't doing them as much anymore. They really aren't. Small acts of kindness could be picking up somebody's, your friend's dry cleaning, or saying, okay, I'm gonna, you know, if you know your friend very well, you can do something like that. Or sending them something from Amazon, or something from, you know, a store. Just sending them something, flowers. Those things will, that will make them feel loved. Okay. I think also being very honest and saying, telling your friend, family member, I'm worried about you. I am worried about you. Something's going on, and um, I'm just checking up on you. And then you have to check up on them. Hey, have you seen the doctor? I can take you to the doctor's. Tell me, you know what, let me make the appointment. Like, you have to be proactive and helping, and not just sending a random text, hey, I thought about you, you know, heart emoji. Yeah. We need to be Actually, proactive when you know that there's something, you know, you notice the big change. <laughs> She has the lead, so I'll let her answer one more question. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to add to that as well. That um, in addition to the small acts of kindness to the person that you're worried about, because we are on the topic of suicide, 
we should also take into consideration that that is very necessary with the families of people who are experiencing suicide ideation uh, or who have are dealing with uh, the death of a family member by suicide. That reaching out to them and being there for them and simply showing them that you care and not overburdening them, just listening and being there is extremely important. And it will have a lasting effect that even if they don't get help or they don't work through it in the beginning, that it can be the thing that is really an anchor for them, um, for them to get help, help later on. And I can share with you that this is my personal experience. My father died by suicide in 2007. And there I received one email and one personal visit that made all of the difference in my life. Someone showed up at my house with two bowls, two spoons, and a bucket of ice cream. I'm humbled. And said, hey man, this is my favorite flavor, let's eat. Yeah. And that's it. And he and I were not good friends at that time, and we are the best of friends until today. And we confide in each other about so many different things. And knowing that somebody is there for you in a time, a very difficult time, made all the difference in understanding that there are people that care when you need to reach out to someone. So if you can be that person, it's extremely important to just facilitate. And I didn't mention this earlier, but I'll mention it now. Uh, you know, Hamba, the companion of the Prophet was seen in the streets of Medina very sad and worried. So Abu Bakr said to him, how are you today? He said, I've become a hypocrite. He said, why? Why do you say that? He said, well, when we're with the Prophet we feel like our Iman is just on, the t on top, and then we get busy with our, with, our, with our families and our children and our work, and we don't feel the same. So Abu Bakr, look, listen to the empathetic response that Abu Bakr gave. He said, each one of us is that person. Let's go talk to the Prophet. He facilitated taking him to a counselor who then listened to him and then told him the answer that he needed to hear. So being that person, as the Prophet said, that there are some people in life who are keys to good. And there are some people in life that are keys to evil. There are some people in life who are locks on evil and some people who are locks on good. So be keys to good and locks on evil and do not be keys to evil and locks on good. So being that person that can facilitate, you don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to ask them all of the poignant questions. You don't have to do anything except be there for them and then that will be, inshallah, the anchor that will take them to something which is much better. Being in that space with them is so important. Being in that space with them. What if you try to help and are looking for signs? You are going overboard by just looking for signs. How can you help someone without being overbearing? Okay, so the warning signs, you know, there's signs for the young, we said, school, going to school, 
not going to school, not grooming themselves, self-harm, and, and talking about death a lot, loss of interest in normal activities. These are things that we are going to be looking for. And I mean, you're, you're trying to look for these. But sometimes, like problems sleeping, feeling uh, trouble concentrating, unintentional weight gain or loss, irritability, all of these signs can sometimes be you, 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 first, the first and foremost, they can be physical as well. It could be a physical ailment. So we always want to uh, weed that out and make sure we go to a doctor, lead them to a physician, and make sure that it's nothing like something, a physical ailment. Because a lot of the signs of depression and signs, warning signs, can be physical things as well, like insomnia. A lot of these things can have physical factors as well. And if those are all uh, weeded out, then we we need to get them help. And yes, we are, sometimes we, we don't want to think the worst. We always want to make sure that you know we're there for them, being there in their space, trying to help them. But we want to make sure that we've ruled out everything before we start saying, oh, you must be depressed, or you must have some problem going on. You must be having suicidal ideation. Because sometimes being so upfront like that can turn people away too. You can ask them, how are you doing? Like Fatima had said, how are you doing? How, how are you feeling today? But a lot of these, uh, sometimes the, a lot of these things can be physical and we have to make sure that we rule those out first and then we can look at this stuff. Okay. I also think that people self-diagnose uh, depression quite easily. We all think that we're depressed, especially when we watch commercials of medication and they're listing things and then you're like, oh, that's me. I have every single one of those symptoms. Or you're Googling things and you're like, oh, I have every single one. I am clinically depressed anyways. No, you have to get, you have to go to the doctor. Take the right channels. Stop self-diagnosing yourself and other people. That's how we get to that. Um, this is a really good question, and I get this often. How do we deal with Muslim parents who won't get their youth counseling or help when they, when they're need, when they need it very much? Well, so let's define youth. Now, if it's a minor, um, unfortunately, you cannot go to a professional counselor without parental consent. And it changes also with divorce. It depending on the divorce decree. Either both parents have to agree, and again, it depends on what they agreed, or they, whoever has full custody or who has the medical rights, they can be the one. So if it's not parental approval that they can't sign the consent forms, then they cannot go to a professional counselor when not see someone of minor. Now, if you are over the age of 18, then yes, clearly you can come see somebody. Now, if you're dealing with a youth that needs counseling, what I would do if you're a family member and you see that, um, speak to the parents. Say, hey, look, I noticed something going on. Um, do you need any help? Do you want me to talk to them? Or you can, that youth has an option at school, right? They can talk to teachers, they can talk to the school counselor, and what they will do is talk to the parents. And it's funny, when a teacher calls and they see her air parents, things start changing, right? They start paying attention more, they're like, oh, okay, I'm gonna take this a little seriously. So there are routes of getting help. You just um, sometimes have to let the child know that, you know, you might wanna to talk to your school counselor. Okay, um, is suicide common amongst those suffering from social anxiety? Suicide, there's not one diagnosis that is directly linked to suicide. So I would say no. I would, it's, it can be any diagnosis, it can be anything. 
having social anxiety does not translate to that you are a higher risk, if that's what you're asking. I believe that's all the questions. Any, any other questions from the crowd? Does that have any questions? Uh, just one thing that I was kind of shocked by is with regards to kids and a culture, even with regards to Islamic schools, where they encourage a person as a form of bullying to kill themselves. Could you comment on that? Have you experienced that where teenagers tell, they might be bullying one individual and they tell them to kill themselves? Oh, you should yes. just kill yourself. Oh. You could comment on that. Oh, yes. I had a point that, uh, of course. That happens a lot. Like kids will be, one of the boys that I had as a client, they will, there was two girls that were bullying him and they turned to him, they were bullying him every day. And they said, turned to him and said, why don't you just kill yourself? Why don't you, nobody wants you around. These are things that happen every day in our schools. We don't realize what a huge issue bullying is, especially with Muslim kids right now. We thought it was bad after 9-11. No, it's really bad right now for these Muslim kids, especially in public schools, Islamic schools too. This, this case that I'm telling you about was at a, after the school, at a masjid, after school. And this child told me that this is what is being said. And then a lot of times what we'll do is we'll go and make, we will talk to the administrators, the people that are running these programs, and they will laugh it off. Oh, it's not a big deal. These are just kids being kids. These are just kids being kids. They're not, they don't actually mean this. So talking about this with our children in the masjids, in our Quran programs after school, is very important because it's happening in Islamic schools. It's happening in uh, the masjids as well. So in Islamic school, when I was a teacher there, I also voluntarily did counseling. They didn't have a counselor, right? So bullying was a huge issue. And sometimes I've seen with Muslim kids that when it's happening in Islamic schools, and it's happening amongst Muslims, like another Muslim child is bullying, uh, one, they're bullying one another, it hurts, it hurts sometimes much more because they're like, these are, these are our friends. These are our Muslim brothers and sisters. Why are they doing this? And I've, I've dealt with kids in public schools, Muslims that are getting bullied in public schools, and it hurts them. It still hurts, but they have a different look, outlook on it. They're like, okay, well, you know, they, they're going to do that. They may be different. Maybe that's why they're doing it. But it's a big issue in our Islamic schools and we don't want to admit it. We don't want to talk about it because it's taboo. And it's a huge issue. We need to talk about it in our masjid. We need to talk about it in our Islamic schools. And we think that bullying is only something that happens in public schools or happening in, uh, amongst non-Muslims bullying Muslim kids. That's not what it is. And we have to understand that we have to speak about it in our schools. We have to speak. And when a parent comes to you as an administrator, as a counselor, they come to you and they said this child said this, you take it seriously and you take corrective action. Because if you do not, then the children will not, they, they will stop coming. And that's what can lead to suicidal ideation, suicidal attempts, and then eventually suicide. Because those are supposed to be their safe people, right? When you come to a masjid or Islamic school, like, the, this is our family. We're brothers and sisters. We're all supposed to love one another. So that can sometimes have a bigger effect on them, a much bigger effect. Okay, I just want to end on this note. I think it's a good um, note to end on and talking about this. Um, I'm going to address some high school situations because social media has destroyed lives of youth, meaning high schoolers, middle schoolers. And that's why kids as young as fifth and fourth grade have committed suicide. It's because the online bullying, it's not necessarily always happening at school, 
the gang up online bullying that happens is where kids' lives are being ruined. Pictures are being put up. I have an example. My daughter's not here, so I can't use an example of her. She would kill me if she was here. But this is, it actually was so shocking to me. I could not get over it. Um, she, she has a mutual friend, one of her really good friends, um, and, and keep away from us. So these things that we have to understand as social media, like all these social apps, and they just tear kids apart. You know, even they'll uh, post a picture or post things that aren't even true, just to humiliate, humiliate somebody. And that's what leads to a lot of these online suicide um, <coughs> issues and deaths. And, and if I could just end, inshallah, uh, we'll end on this now, right? Um, the Prophet hadith is mentioned by Mundiri in Targhib al Tarheeb, Sheikh Al Bani, greater than Hassan, that the Prophet said, Afdal al Amari il Khala Sururi ala al Mu'min. Kasauta awratahu, aw ashba'ta jawatahu, aw qalayta hajatahu. That the best act that one can do is to enter happiness on the heart of a believer. That you cover their faults, or you feed their empty stomach, or you take care of a need that they have. The inverse of that would be then that the worst act that you could do would be to inject negativity into the heart of another Muslim, another believer. We have to combat the culture of negativity that is very prominent in our community, regardless of national background, ethnicity, age, it doesn't matter. There is a lot of negativity, a lot of nihilism, a lot of cynicism, a lot of pessimism, a lot of allowing ourselves to be bullied and to bully others, a lot of, a lot of allowing ourselves to remain negative and to frame everything in a negative sense. And until we start to become the lanterns, you know, the, 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 the nur, Allah nur samawati wa Allah's nur is the light of the heavens and the earth. Ubayd bin Ka'b said, this is a parable of the light found in the heart of the believer that shines forth as an example for others. So until we start to embody that nur, and we start to become the examples that we need in our house, illuminating our own homes, and our own masajid, and our own community centers, then we'll always have the problem of darkness encroaching from both within and without. And it takes us to then change the way that we think, educate ourselves about Islam, get past the very simplistic ways that we look and we think about this, not by saying that these are archaic ideas and we need to change. No, by actually committing to educating ourselves and living our faith faithfully and being full of faith while being faithful to it. And so I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to enter happiness upon each and every one of your hearts, to make you all lights that shine forth with the light given to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and the guidance that he was sent down with, to be from amongst those that live out the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on this earth so that they may, may be blessed with looking to his face subhanahu wa ta'ala in the next life. Ameen. Jazakumullah khairan subhanakallahumma bihamdika shayla la ilaha illa astaghfirullah wa atubu ilayk. As-salamu alaykum. Jazakumullah khairan. I would just like to uh, close by thanking the esteemed panel for, for joining us tonight.
and for everybody, all of our attendants who came in and spent a little bit uh, of time after Isha as well. Um, this uh, program, uh, and this masjid is your masjid. I just want to conclude with that. We hope, inshallah, to have more and more panels in the future with regards to the issues that are affecting our, our community and our families. And if anyone has any ideas and anything that they would like to continue to, to do here, you are more than welcome, inshallah, to, add, to speak to myself or Brother Ahmed was walking away to the AV of this masjid. Find him, inshallah, and speak to him as well. Everybody have a good night. Get home safe. So,